You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Whenever the liberal media talks about the Republican Party and the GOP's uh, election chances in, in any election. One of the phrases you constantly hear is that the GOP has a deep bench. The Democrats, they don't have a deep bench, but the GOP has this deep bench. They have all these governors like Chris Christie and Bobby Jindal and Jeb Bush, who used to be a governor. They have this deep bench. They also have all these state reps. They've taken control of many state legislators. They've got this huge class of State reps and senators who are you know, going to move on to the national stage and the Dems don't have quite as deep a bench. I'd like to introduce you to two, uh, two folks on that very deep bench, a bench that is deep with idiots, racists, sexists, and homophobes, uh, and, and just idiots. We'll start with the idiot. Tennessee State Senator Stacey Camfield, I'm reading from Talking Points Memo, caused a stir on Monday morning when he wrote on his personal blog that Democrats bragging about the number of mandatory signups for Obamacare is like Germans bragging about the number of mandatory signups for train rides for Jews in the 1940s. Because, you know, providing people with health care, using a mechanism devised by the Heritage Foundation, the conservative idea about how to provide health care for more uninsured Americans, the conservative plan first put into uh, action in Massachusetts by then-Governor Mitt Romney, a Republican, getting people health insurance, just like herding people onto trains and sending them to death camps. This caused a little bit of a shitstorm in Campfield State Senator. Stacy Campfield was asked about this later, and he said in an interview with the AP, doubling down, that Jewish people should be the first to stand up against Obamacare because when you have the government deciding who gets health insurance and who doesn't, they're really deciding who lives and dies, just like the Nazis did. Jews, of course, voted overwhelmingly for Obama when he ran for re-election, despite the best efforts of the GOP and religious conservatives and social conservatives to try to convince Jews that providing more Americans with health care is just like exterminating Europe's Jews in the 30s and 40s. And this idea that, you know, there was a time when there wasn't some sort of nefarious group of jerks who were deciding who lived and dies is just not true. Is, does Campfield really want us to believe that it was better back when insurance companies and not, say, Barack Obama got to decide who lived and died? Remember rescission? That was a big debate during the uh, health care reform when the ACA was moving through the Senate and, and the House. Rescission was a policy where insurance companies, health insurance companies, they could cancel your policy when you got sick. You could be paying your health insurance premiums, paying your health insurance premiums. Rescission meant they could cancel your policy at the moment that you needed it for any reason. They didn't have to justify it. It's like saying, I have house insurance. Until my house catches fire and then my house insurance company canceled my policy. I, I my car, I've got driver's insurance, I have auto insurance until the minute I get into a car accident and then the insurance company cancels my policy. It wasn't legal for people who insured cars, people who insured houses to do that. But it was legal for health insurance companies to do that and they did do it and people died. 
But according to Stacey Campfield, we were a free people when insurance companies decided who lived and died. But now that you know there's Obamacare, we are slaves to a law that makes it impossible for private insurance companies to cancel the health insurance policies of Americans who make the mistake of getting sick. Thank you, Obama. In other news, the New York Times reported that same day that Stacey Campfield was making an asshole of himself in public by opening his asshole mouth, that the death rate in Massachusetts, quoting from the New York Times, dropped significantly after it adopted mandatory health care coverage in 2006. A study released on Monday found Massachusetts was a model for crucial parts of Obamacare's health care law, and it has saved lives. The decline was 3%. In the four years after the law went into effect, the decline was steepest in counties with the highest proportions of poor and previously uninsured people. A national 3% decline in mortality among adults under 65, which is what happened in Massachusetts after Mitt Romney enacted basically Obamacare there. A national decline of 3% would mean 17,000 fewer deaths a year. So Obamacare, it's going to save the lives of 17,000 Americans every year. Obamacare, it's the holocaust of saving lives. Idiot number two, GOP lawmaker, state representative in South Dakota, Steve Hickey, who has been giving speeches condemning gay marriage and gay rights because anal sex is icky. He wrote an opinion piece calling on doctors to say that gay sex is not good for the body or the mind. Pardon a crude comparison, but regarding men with men, we are talking about a one-way alley meant only for the garbage truck to go down. Frankly, I'd question the judgment of a doctor who says it's all fine. And what he's talking about there is anal sex, right? One-way garbage truck, one-way alley for a garbage truck to go down. As if straight people also aren't having anal sex. Straight people are having tons of anal sex. He also, like Stacey Campfield, this asshole, Steve Hickey, doubled down when confronted about his idiotic comments about gay sex. He said, I hesitate to get crude again, but, you know, he's not going to hesitate at all. And then he went on to say, is it okay for, you know, eight of your friends that you're in love with to take a dump in your bed and then you can sleep in it all year long? Because that's what gay sex is. It's a nine way where you invite eight of your friends over to shit in your bed and then you lay in their shit for a year. Because if there's anything we know about gay men is we just don't like to change our sheets basically. We like linens. We buy a lot of fancy linens but we just fold them up and put them on the shelf and we sleep in shit smeared sheets all year long. This obsession with doo-doo. If there is shit in your bed after you have anal sex, you're doing it wrong or you're doing it at the wrong time. Gay people go to such lengths to avoid the poo-poo, douching, enemas, knowing thyself, fiber pills. Most gay people and most straight people who have anal sex do everything they can to minimize the chances of encountering Santorum, let alone eight giant dumps in your bed. But it's really all they can think about. It's all this guy can think about. So what we have here in Steve Hickey is just another Republican anti-gay bigot who spends an awful lot of time imagining piles of gay men rolling around in their feces. I think he should talk to someone about that. Someone who isn't a reporter. This is their deep bench, ladies and gentlemen. Idiots who think providing health care to Americans is like exterminating Europe's Jews. 
and straight men and Christian pastors like Steve Hickey who spend all day, every day picturing piles of gay men rolling around in their poop. The deep bench. I'm not as scared of it, nor should you be. Coming up today on the Savage Lovecast, tons of your great sex questions. And also on the Magnum edition of this week's show, we've got Dr. Christian Grove on male sex workers and filmmaker David Thorpe on The Gay Voice. All ahead on the Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old from living in San Francisco, and I had a question. I have a boyfriend that I've been dating for about 10 months now. He's 22. I'm 26 again. And... You know, he's been kind of all-American type the entire time we've been dating. Uh, last week, he sprung on me that casually that he wanted to, and I'm really open-minded, but he sprung casually on me that he wanted to start um, doing webcam and possibly getting into porn for money. And, of course, I'm really open-minded, but, of course, I uh, when you love someone, it's a little bit of a different story to picture this happening. So I guess... I got him to agree to not do it anymore, but now I feel suspicious of him, and I went, I know I shouldn't do this, but I I went into his history and found that he's been watching cougar porn, and I know, again, everyone watches porn, but it's just all of these things all of a sudden that I wouldn't expect from him that are coming forth, and I feel like I don't know him anymore, and he won't really talk to me, and so I'm wondering, am I being judgmental? Do I talk to him about it? What does it mean? Should I let him explore his sexuality and break up with him? Because I don't think it's a good relationship where you're feeling like you don't trust the person and you have to snoop through the thing. So help, please. Before I tell you to break up with this guy, and I am going to tell you to break up with this guy, I just want to say that you first identify him as the all-American type and then you identify him as – uh, porn consumer and somebody who might want to appear in porn and someone who watches a certain specific kind of porn uh, as if that is antithetical somehow to all American boy. All American boys watch a lot of porn. Porn is a huge multi-billion dollar industry. It's a tech leader. All new technologies are originally pioneered by porn, online porn, online pay systems, PayPal, uh, all – well, I don't know about PayPal. But all this shit really, porn gets there first because people have this insatiable desire because there's such tremendous demand. So I just reject your sort of suggestion that he was all-American and then he told me he's into porn and now he's not so all-American anymore. Um, it is completely all-American to be all over and all into porn. It's a different thing though to want to appear in porn uh, and to suggest to your girlfriend that you'd like her to also appear in porn with you. And maybe that's queered the relationship for you because now you look at him and think, is he really into me or was he just trying to leverage me? Right To get you to do porn with him, to get you to be his co-star. But clearly porn turns him on and exhibitionism or appearing in porn also turns him on. You can have a conversation about that. You can have a conversation about the cougar thing if you want. Um, or you can just look at him and think, you know, we're not sexually compatible. If porn is absolutely positively something you're not interested in doing and being with a guy who has this desire, this stated desire and we will probably bring it up again and again and again – isn't right for you, he needs to toddle off and find a girl who's into camming or might be up for it and you need to toddle off and find an all-American boy who watches tons of porn as all American boys do but doesn't want to appear in it himself nor does he want his girlfriend to appear in it. And speaking of porn, all-American porn, 
Hump Tour uh, comes to Portland, Oregon this weekend. Go to humptour.com for information about the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival, which has a best of uh, night coming to Portland, coming back to Portland, because Portland, of course, is a big part of Hump. We'll see you at Cinema 21 this weekend, Portland porn fans, and go to humptour.com for more info and for tickets. Hi, Dan. My girlfriend and I have been dating for one and a half years. We're both Aquarians, and she struggles to get aroused by me. There have been many times since last May where we tried to have sex, and she'd have no sensation in her vagina, or she would have penetration fears. And enough of these events over the months led to increasing anxiety about having sex with me. We had sexual connection in the beginning, and sometimes she would have sensation throughout the summer and in December. We went on a break recently for two months. She experimented with a guy and felt desire and sensation during sex with him. We haven't had sex since the break ended. We love each other immensely. This sexual disconnection is killing our relationship. What do you think? It's a documented, a well-documented fact in the scientifically sound field of astrology, taught at major universities, of course, that have endowed astrology chairs, that an Aquarian and an Aquarian, when they come together, that's a recipe for uh, sensation-free vaginas, that there's something about the alignment of the planets, that when an Aquarian dates another Aquarian, eventually the sensation drains from the vagina of at least one of the Aquarians in that relationship. If you have two Aquarians in that relationship who both have vaginas, of course, you can end up with uh, Barbie crotches in the end. Not only does the sensation drain from the vagina, but it closes over and seals up. So you need to accept that this relationship was not meant to be and you need to move on and maybe find a Libra or a Sagittarian or a Ford Taurus or whatever else is out there that might be a better planetary partnership for you. Someone who's skeptical of all this astrology bullshit, one of the doubters and deniers out there might say that you two just weren't sexually compatible, that she wasn't that into you, that this, you know, I feel nothing in my vagina means the relationship kind of ran its course and clearly there's nothing wrong with her vagina if it, you know, stands on its hind legs and barks when some other guy comes down the street, then her vagina is fine. It was something about you two coming together and, you know, obviously, then you say to the astrology skeptic, it's about the Aquarian thing, obviously. Don't you read horoscopes? So your mission is just to accept that this was not meant to be and move on, which I think she has already accepted. You guys have broken up. She is fucking other guys. She is reporting back to you that her vagina works fine now, which is, seems a little wound-salting to me. But isn't that just like an Aquarian? So go find a Taurus. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old straight woman on the West Coast, and I have this weird question. So whenever my boyfriend kisses or sucks on my nipples, I feel this weird sadness. I've never had children and I've never experienced any sexual abuse or trauma. So I was just wondering what was up with that. And I surprisingly can't find anything out about it on the internet. Thanks. I've never breastfed uh, anyone myself. Uh, but it is true that there are certain parts of my body that if you touch, I kind of get a sad that there are part places I don't want to be touched, places I don't like to be touched, places that just call forth this kind of inexplicable, emotional sort of 
response, not an overwhelming emotional response. I don't break down and cry. I just kind of wiggle away feeling a little discomforted. Maybe that's what's going on with your nipples. I have no idea. If you can't find it Googling around, I'm certainly not going to be able to find it Googling around. And sometimes you just have to shrug and tell yourself sometimes bodies and brains make weird connections that cannot be unpacked. That No amount of forensic accounting can give you an answer for why this is the way it is, why being touched in this certain spot has this seemingly random association Seemingly random emotional response. All you can do is kind of roll with it. You know, if you were abused in a certain way, if somebody took advantage of you, if you were – when you first hit puberty and your breasts developed, if they were – if they drew a lot of unwelcome attention to you or teasing, uh, perhaps there's that. But who knows? You just have to accept that this is how your body works, at least for now. Roll with it. If it's not dis – what's the word? If it doesn't entirely derail you, this momentary feeling or sensation, if it's something you can power through uh, because your partner derives so much pleasure from sucking on your nipples, uh, maybe it's something you can unlearn in time. Maybe it's something you can overcome. Maybe you can create new and positive associations with this kind of stimulation uh, by going forth with it, by sort of faking it until you make it. But if the sad is a deep and depressing one, if it pulls you out of sex entirely, you have a right to say that doesn't feel good and doesn't work for me and I'd rather you didn't. And if it's about sucking your nipples or playing with your nipples, there's plenty of ways you can play with someone's breasts without getting right on their nips. And you can encourage him to do that instead. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 26-year-old gay man living in Arizona. My uh, coming out story has been a kind of long, drawn-out thing. I was born and raised in Texas, unfortunately, where I grew up. Uh, being gay isn't accepted. My mother has always been loving and everything, but um, she you know, was around my friends and around school and everything where being gay wasn't accepted. Everybody that was gay was bashed and bullied and everything, so I was always scared of coming out. So I really didn't start coming out until I went to college. And uh, even then, you know, it was only experimental and not really coming out as gay. And uh, I actually met a girl, married her, that really should have been ended terribly. And it left me heartbroken and confused. So my brother moved me out to Arizona, where I am living here now. I've been living here for three years. And with this whole new life and everything, new start, I told myself I accepted who I am. I'm a gay man and have never been happier. Absolutely love my life now. And uh, so I started coming out to everyone. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, I, I told my mom that I'm gay. And she was absolutely accepting of it. Absolutely perfect reaction. She says she loves me no matter what. But she also told me to hold off on telling my dad because of some of the reactions he's made. He's, um, you know, when I was younger, he said being gay isn't natural. It's disgusting. All people that are gay get AIDS and die. So, of course, I was terrified of telling my dad. But I feel like the time has come where I do need to tell him. Um, I'm going home next month back to Texas. And I plan on telling him then. I told my mom that I want to tell him, and she completely has my back. And she asked me what the worst case scenario would be. And I told her him not accepting me and kicking me out of the house, and never wanting to talk to me again. And she made the comment, well, if he kicks you out of the house, then I'm going with you. 
And I was kind of confused about that. And she said, if she kicks you out of the house, I'm moving to Arizona with you. I'm leaving him. If he disowns you, I disown him. And I feel like that puts a lot of pressure on me, saying me being the reason of who I am, my parents splitting up. And I, I feel like that puts a lot of pressure on me. And makes me terrified, even more terrified of telling my dad. I guess my question is, should I tell my mom that that's really wrong for her to say, put that pressure on me, that whenever I tell him, should I ask her, no matter what happens, for her to stay and kind of let him accept the fact that I'm gay, give it some time, because I know he'll be shocked at first, but I feel after some time he's going to accept it. I just don't want to be the reason that my parents split up. There's a chapter in my uh, latest book, American Savage, about the fact that the states with the highest percentage of gay couples per capita raising children are not California and Washington State and New York. Uh, the states with the highest percentage of gay parents per capita are Mississippi and other states in the Deep South and the Bible Belt and Texas. And the reason for this is because so many queer people growing up in those places had the same experiences that you did, caller. They watched gay people being bashed. They listened to all this homophobic bullshit. Their families were intolerant and they figured they could never come out. And so they married opposite sex partners and had some kids. You didn't make that mistake. Thank God you got out of it before you had some kids. And then when they can no longer deny the truth, they would leave their opposite sex partners, form new relationships and wind up as same-sex couples raising children that they had in earlier opposite sex relationships when they were closeted. And the irony and the reason I'm digressing here, the irony of all this is the single biggest driver of the gay parenting movement, the gay boom, is not books like The Kid that I wrote or The Velveteen Father or the gay parenting movement or surrogacy or anything else. The biggest driver, the biggest creator of gay parents in America is anti-gay bigotry is right-wing religious Christian psychos screaming and yelling about gay people, attacking us, bashing us, telling, convincing young gay and lesbian people that their only choice is the closet and an opposite-sex relationship. Oh, the irony. But you got out before that happened to you and good for you. Now the question is what do you do about your dad? Okay, you're out, your brother helped you move to Arizona. Presumably you are out to your brother. Your mother, you're out to her and she is on your side. That is tremendous leverage. And as I've said a million times, if you're a listener to this program, you've heard me say this. Your only leverage as an adult child is your presence in your parents' lives. If they can't love you and treat you decently, don't see them. The trick is so many gay kids live in fear of their parents' rejection. The trick as a gay adult is you have to make them fear your rejection. So you march in there and you tell your dad that you are gay and that you've always been gay. And despite where you were raised, despite the bigotry you were exposed to, despite the fear of his rejection, this was a truth that could not be undone, that this is who you are. And if it was a choice, you wouldn't have chosen it, obviously – and he needs to pull his head out of his ass or he's not going to see you at all. And then what your mother does is up to your mother. What your brother does is up to your brother. That you have their love and support, that they're willing to draw a line in the sand with your dad or your mom is at least, is a good thing. Who knows? Maybe your mom wants out of this marriage and has wanted out of this marriage for a very long time and is going to use your father's reaction to your coming out as her excuse 
But that's up to her. You can tell her, don't do it for me. Do whatever you need to do for you. And if I were you, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't go home and tell dad. I would send dad a letter. Write dad and tell him and let him, if you're afraid of him, if you're afraid he's going to have some sort of violent reaction, throw you out of the house physically, you don't have to march in there and subject yourself to that. You don't have to paint a bullseye on your back or your front or your forehead and go tell dad you're a cocksucker. You can just write a letter and say, this is who I am and this has been hard and I'm sure this is going to be news to you and perhaps upsetting but this is the truth and I love you too much to lie to you for the rest of my life. And then let the chips fall where they may and let your mother do what your mother's going to do and let your brother do what they're going to do. You can't stay closeted for the rest of your life for fear of what your mother might do or say in the wake of your coming out. That's her shit. Coming out is your shit. You take care of your shit. Let your mother take care of hers. Hey, I am currently living in upstate New York and I moved here from a city on the West Coast. I'm just visiting my boyfriend still living over there. And we, you know, obviously were hooking up the whole week and it wasn't until maybe two hours before I was about to catch a flight back to New York that he let me know that he has some type of like body lice or crabs. He doesn't know what it is because he never went to the doctor, he checked out. And I just can't believe that he neglected to tell me. The entire trip, when there are multiple times I was asking him about his behavior, why was he changing his sheets every single night? Why was he taking a shower at night? You know, just to know what was up because that behavior is different than he normally, how than how he normally behaves. And I feel I'm so like I'm so upset and I'm not really sure how to handle the situation because I think it's really fucked up. Really? You're not sure how to handle this situation. Somebody with one of the low-level, pretty annoying and hard to get rid of sexually transmitted infections, crabs, fucked you all weekend knowing he had crabs, didn't say anything to you, was jumping around the apartment, scratching himself and showering all the time and didn't say anything to you about it because you were his personal fleshlight for the weekend and he had no responsibilities to you. He didn't have to share that information with you. He didn't require your informed consent before you took on the risk of acquiring this very easily acquired sexually transmitted infection and you want to know what to do? In the best of all possible worlds, you would have him killed but you can't do that because that is illegal and we shouldn't kill people and you know, as offenses go, knowingly exposing someone to an annoying but curable sexually transmitted infection versus having that person murdered. Of course, the murder is a much greater offense than you go to prison for the rest of your life. But at the very least, you should break the fuck up with him. And I don't think you did that yet since you're calling me asking what you should do. You should call him and say, you are a, a scummy piece of shit, a selfish, obnoxious dick monster and I want nothing to do with you for the rest of my fucking life. How obnoxious, how selfish, how log stupid, how inconsiderate, how vicious. And then you go to the doctor and you get checked for crabs and you use the anti-crab crazy soap on yourself or you shave off all your pubic hair and your eyebrows and your eyelashes and everything else and you get rid of it and you get rid of him without question. This is not something you should have hesitated about. This is something you should have known to do. This is not something that someone – who is a sexually active adult should have to be told to do. If you have to be told to do this, you might not be 
smart enough, tall enough to ride this ride, the, the, the dick ride. You might be not ready yet for the dick ride, the dick coaster. You might want to go on spinning teacups for a little while longer before you upgrade to the dick coaster. Anyway, give him a call, dump him, and uh, call me back anytime that you need encouragement to dump someone who's treated you terribly as this boy has. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay guy in my early 30s, and here's my question. Should I come out to my grandma? Yeah, I know, I know, of course I should, everybody should, but uh, here's what's going on. She's 93, and she's developing dementia, so she can't remember things from one day to the next, and sometimes she goes on these moral panic binges when she kind of makes things up and thinks the worst of everything. Um, like she did when she found out my sister's boyfriend was uh, divorced previously. I've heard her say good things and bad things about gay people, so I don't really know what to expect. But I don't want to feel like I'm burdening her with something at this point in her life. And honestly, I am afraid of losing her approval. If I do tell her I'm gay, I'm worried that it would be selfish. I'm single. I have next to no dating history. Um, I'm in therapy to try to work on that and a lot of depression. Mostly that's about hating myself for being gay and for having some of those impossible, unrealizable kinks you talk about on the show sometimes. Um, but without a boyfriend, I'm worried that I'd basically just be telling grandma how I masturbate and, you know, yes. And if I want to demonstrate that gay people are happy and healthy and normal at the moment, I'm a pretty lousy example. So, well, what do you think? Should I tell her that someday when I meet somebody special, he's going to be a man? Or should I just recognize that I missed my chance when Grandma was healthy? Hello? Hey, it's Dan Savage. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Ah, doing okay, thank you. Good, I'm glad to hear it. I just wanted to call first to say that, you know, you say that you're not a great example of normal, healthy, anything. But, you know, it's normal for people to have issues, to struggle with depression. It's normal for people to sometimes be single. And it's really good that you're working on these issues, that you're in therapy, that you're overcoming them. That's all points to like healthy and, and functional. So you need to give yourself a little bit of a break on that score. That you, you, you cite yourself an example of some sort of seriously and permanently and forever damage. Not a good example of a gay man. You're a great example of a gay man. Oh, thank you. That's, that's good to hear. Uh, and I'm calling back because I'm super nosy and I want to know what your impossible kinks are. Ah, uh, that one. I um, love impossible kinks. Huh. Yeah, it's uh, commonplace and highly embarrassing. Um, <laughs> Is it illegal? Uh, Is that the impossibility yep. of it? Yep. Yep. Okay, well, then we don't have to get into it if it's illegal. As long as it remains in the realm of fantasy and is never acted upon, then oh, yeah, you can explore it in a not destructive way where you're not harming yourself or derailing your life or harming anyone else. Exactly. And that's, you know, it's not normal, but it's, but non-normal is normal when it comes to sex. There's a lot of people walking around with really dark or sinister or impossible or illegal if realized fantasy. So even that you get to give yourself a break on the test, the, you know, the, the acid test of whether you're a good egg or a bad egg, a good witch or a bad witch, when you have those kinds of fantasies is how you incorporate them into your life in a healthy and non-harmful to yourself or others way. And if you're doing that, you're golden. Okay? Yeah, that's the, that's the project. Now, moving on to grandma. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, I had a hateful, bigoted grandma. It doesn't sound like your grandma's hateful or bigoted. Uh, you know, you say she said good things and bad things about gay people. But coming out to my hateful, bigoted, crazy grandma gave me some really great stories to tell all my life. And I don't – and they're not examples of like uh, how much it sucks to be gay. They're examples of how ridiculous bigots and haters can be, including the ones in your own family. So you need to change your POV about coming out to grandma, especially if she has dementia. You probably have to come out to her again and again and again. And who knows? Maybe one day you'll get loving, accepting, gay-affirming grandma and one day you'll get crazy, bigoted Pat Robertson grandma. You never know. Yeah, I um. I, I was wrestling with it and actually decided to send her a letter about a day after I called you. Uh-huh. Did you send it? I did. Um, and? And I spent a, a pretty nervous week waiting to see what the reaction was. And she ended up calling some other family members and blowing up at them about other things. So I called her to talk to her because I figured the timing was pretty suspect. And I got about one sentence about how I'm you know, materialistic and so obsessed with having a house and a car and not following Jesus. And I got passed <laughs> off the map. It's okay. I'm trying not to, trying not to be too hurt, but it does kind of sting. Well, you also have to remember she's 90 fucking three years old and is suffering from dementia. So you can't, you can't hold her entirely accountable or, you know, fall into a shame pit and self-loathing pit because this crazy dying woman reacted in a way that was unpredictable or unkind you got to shrug that off. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame her. I, I sort of in this place where I'm blaming myself for making her upset about something that you can't really have a mature yeah. conversation. Uh, okay, anyway. but you need to even change your POV about that because there's a stage at life at which old cranky Fox News watching bigots really get off on being upset or freaked out or angry about shit. You, you probably restarted her heart. You saved her life because all she has now is rage, rage and hate and anger bombing. You gave her something to be upset about and you probably kept her on the earth for another month or two. Yeah, I guess there's some energy there. I mean it would be nice. It would be lovely if we all had the you know queer people. We all had the love and support and, and, of, of all of our family members. But that's just not the way it works. Not even straight people have the love and support of all of their family members. That's setting an unrealistic – expectation up for yourself and then when it you know life and reality and family fall short of that expectation you're going to be disappointed you can't do you have, do you have family members who love and support you yes i do um that's actually the, the thing that surprised me a lot about telling her is that i'm there's more support from other people than i ever expected well it's, focus it's, on that instead yeah. of focusing on batshit old granny and her batshit hate which you kind <sighs> of have to credit to the dementia my grandma when she was hating on me was all systems go and firing. There's, there was no like get out of batshit hate free card for my grandmother because she was not demented. She was demented but not diagnosed with dementia demented. She was just hateful. Right. But it got great stories like Terry and I when DJ was born, when our son was born, we sent grandma a birth announcement and she mailed it back. Ouch. I know. Ouch. It was, but it's funny. You know, then we joked about we were going to go to her wake and slip that birth announcement into her casket so she could spend fucking eternity with it. But, oh, but, <laughs> but we misplaced it. <laughs> so we couldn't, we couldn't do that at her wake. But in spirit, we slipped that fucking birth announcement into her casket. And in spirit, she's spending eternity with it because I talk about it and I've written about it. So we win in the end. We triumph over our grandparents. And one day our grandchildren will triumph over us. That sounds kind of fair. 
So you're in a good place. You're getting it together. You're, you're in therapy. You have family that's on your side. You're good. You need to – thank God you're not a gay guy in the Brunei where they're now enacting Sharia law and they're stoning to death gay people or Nigeria or Uganda or Russia or Jamaica. You're in a good place and you've got a good support system and you've got help. You're good regardless of what your insane old grandma thinks. And who knows? She's demented. One day you may get a call from her saying, I love my gay grandson. I'd be a little bit shocked, but it doesn't sound impossible. <laughs> well, good luck. And uh, good luck with the therapy and the impossible fantasies and the rest of your life. And you're good. You're, you're a good example of a gay man. All gay men should be as proactive about whatever their issues are as you are. Thank you. That, that means a lot. Hi, Dan. Um, I just recently started an open relationship with my fiance and I started having a relationship or whatever you would call it with the bartender where I work and he is sort of being emotional. I don't know what's going on. And he, he sort of said like, this is going to end once you get married. And I'm like, okay, but I'm just sort of wondering like what I should do about, you know, it's like, I'm already living with my fiance and Marty having sex with you. So like, why does it need to end the minute I get married? There's two things this guy could be telling you. One, he could be telling you that he's afraid that after you marry, that your feelings about being in an open relationship are going to change and he's going to be written out of your sex life and kicked out of your bed. Or he could be telling you that after you're married, he doesn't want to fuck you anymore. He could be telling you that there's something about marriage that he sees as essentially monogamous and he will feel worse about having sex with a married woman than he does, I guess, about having sex with an engaged woman. And he's entitled to his feelings and his own hang-ups and irrationalities. But the only way to demonstrate to him if it's problem one, that he's afraid you'll stop fucking him after you're married, the only way to demonstrate to him that you will continue to fuck him after you are married is to continue to fuck him after you are married. This is a problem that is going to work itself out and sort itself out in the end. That doesn't mean in the end you're going to still have access to this bartender's dick because that could, you know, could just as likely be problem number two, that he has this hang-up about fucking married women that he doesn't have about fucking engaged women. People have weird, sometimes seemingly irrational hang-ups. Uh, only getting married and then seeing how it all shakes out will tell you which one it was. And so you'll just have to wait and see. Hey, Dan. Um, I am a 22-year-old gay male from Atlanta, and I have a little bit of a conundrum. So I had a discussion with my boyfriend of a few months um, earlier today who I have discovered is uncomfortable with I guess sexting, which sounds even dumber when you say it out loud, but it, basically any like text or phone communication, whether it be like pictures of a sexual nature. So he's really uncomfortable with it and doesn't want to do it anymore. We, it's happened a lot previously, rather spectacularly, actually, um, which is why this conversation has left me kind of not in shock, but certainly out of left field. So it wouldn't necessarily be that big of a deal, except he is in the military and will be leaving for Afghanistan by, well, within the next couple months. So I was kind of banking on more of a cyber phone sex picture sending kind of deal to help with, with that distance process with both of our sex drives. And so now I'm kind of concerned about getting through 
you know, the better part of a year without seeing one another if he is too uncomfortable to send me a picture of his butthole. There's no shortage of butthole pics online. You can swap out his butthole for some other butthole and exchange dirty emails or maybe write actual letters like people used to. This seems like something that you two can work around. You need to have a conversation though with him about why this was okay initially and is not okay now. Maybe he was engaged in sexting with you initially because it's sort of common and he felt that this was something that he should be willing and able to do but it always left him feeling uncomfortable about the digital images he was sharing or the sort of trail he was creating, pictures that might come back to haunt him if he wants a, you know, a career in public service or something. Uh, maybe there's a reason why he was doing it at first and then his reservations that were always present got the best of him or the better of him and now he doesn't want to do it anymore and that's his right. He, each of us has a right to say this is a thing that makes me so uncomfortable. I can't enjoy it. But there are workarounds. You're going to be separated for a year while he's in Afghanistan. Write each other letters. Write each other emails. Um, masturbate furiously and constantly. Uh, talk on the phone and, and, and you can have phone sex maybe if he is down with that. But this is a conversation you need to have with him about how you two can sort of be there for each other sexually while you're at a great distance. What is he up for? What can he do? What can you ask of him that isn't going to leave him feeling uncomfortable or vulnerable? If the photos should surface or you lose track of them or a phone gets lost or a computer gets stolen, you just never know. And one thing you know, people your age don't seem to know about is there was a time when people who were separated by a great distance couldn't Skype and sext and send each other pictures of their buttholes. They would have to remember each other and masturbate about each other fondly or write each other long letters and tell them all the dirty fucking hot sexy – shitty things they're going to do to them once they got back near them and on top of them. And you too can go steampunk on this and revert to old school style uh, getting by while the partner's away at war. Good luck. We're going to take a short break from your calls. We have plenty of calls, which we'll get back to in just a minute. But first, there are tons of sex researchers and scientists out there trying to figure out what we're doing and why. When one of them publishes the results of a study that we think might interest our listeners, we invite them on the show for a segment we call What You Got. Joining us by phone today from his offices in New York City, Dr. Christian Grove. He is the Associate Professor of Health at Brooklyn College, uh, also in New York City. Uh, Dr. Grove, thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So uh, what you got? What do you got for us? Well, um, the study that we're going to talk about today was uh, just published in uh, the Journal of Sex Research and Social Policy, and it's all about um, uh, male escorts who um, sell services to other men. We got just about 400 wait, wait, guys. Wait, wait, wait. Um, male escorts who sell services to other men, also known as male escorts, all of them for the most uh, part. Correct. I, I think it's important <laughs> for the qualifier, but I'm sure your audience gets it, but some people don't. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we had almost. Uh, we had sorry, we had over 400 guys complete an online survey um, about you know their experiences uh, being a male escort, and um, some of the questions that we posed them, um, or rather, I should say, uh, a lot of research that's done with gay and bisexual men, and a lot of stuff that's done with people who are involved in the sex industry. Um, are trying to shove HIV and AIDS prevention down their throat. So we pose the question of 
um, what kind of services or what kind of workshops would you be interested in? And I uh, gave them a whole list of things ranging from how to build a website, you know, for yourself, how to market yourself to clients, how to stop being an escort, um, how to manage your money, um, how to negotiate safer sex with clients, and, you know, including HIV. And one of the big findings from the study was uh, perhaps unsurprising, but HIV did not rank first, second, third, fourth, fifth. It came in 12 um, out of 14. Um, and what we found was that most escorts are really looking for ways to help them be better escorts. So how to manage their money, how to um, find and keep the best clients. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an important lesson, I think, for researchers who for a long time have uh, been trying to save, um, you know, men from escorting or made assumptions uh-huh. that, uh, that they need uh, HIV and AIDS prevention. Okay, so basically what you found when you interviewed men who'd gone into the business of selling sex was their primary concern was how to be the best businessmen they could possibly be in the business of selling sex. Correct. And, you know, these are people that are still active in the business, so it's, in, you know, it's important to remember that. And so, yes. So where did you find these guys, the, the guys you interviewed? Um, sure. So we um, did this study in partnership with a group called HookOnline.org, um, uh, and uh, they uh, are an escort or sex worker advocacy organization, grassroots, huge online presence. Um, we worked with them, and we worked with Rent Boy. Um, and all the advertising for the study to get into it was done on uh, Rent Boy. So uh, everyone that completed our survey probably was a rent boy that they could have certainly advertised in other websites as well. So I'm curious if any government funding was involved in this study, and if so, have any Republicans found out about this yet? Are you going to be <laughs> up there with Benghazi in the next 20 minutes? Um, maybe. Uh, so I will <laughs> say that the, 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 there was no government funding involved in this study um, at this point, though if government funding was involved, I still think that there's a lot of valid information that uh, would be worthy of taxpayer dollars. Oh, as you know, do I. As do I. And it's not as if male escorts aren't taxpayers and citizens. It's not as if the guys who patronize them and, you know, the girl – the one girl on earth who's perhaps seen a male escort patronizes them too and they pay taxes and they have a legitimate uh, place in our culture and our society and you know, a legitimate claim on some taxpayer funding for research that might help them do what they do uh, in a healthier and safer way. But the takeaway here is what then? So, so you did this research. You came up with these results. Who are they for and, and what do people need to, to, to know and how should this change or alter people's views or uh, response to or uh, the services people offer male sex workers? Sure. Well, I mean, it, what it tells us is that if you're going to provide outreach or services for men who are involved in escorting, and ultimately, you know what, you may want to get these people enrolled in health care and you may want to get them mental health you know, services, and you may want to get them HIV education, but if you market it that way, you're probably not going to get those people to come into the door. So if you um, uh, want to reach people, um, uh, understand where they're coming from and what their needs are, and then get in the other pieces if you want to get them in there as well. I also want to throw out there, these guys, that, you know, that completed our survey, you know, really challenge assumptions of what we know about sex work, especially a lot of stuff that's been done with street-based samples who are marginally housed or may have substance abuse problems. You know, these guys are very much like 
the gay and bisexual men that we've been studying for decades. And uh, but it's not all hunky dory with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we did ask some questions about being out, about escorting to friends and family, and a lot of them are not out about it. Um, in fact, a quarter of them weren't out to any a single friend or a single family about being an escort. So that really tells us that there's also a very strong need for. Um, uh, providing a sense of community or a sense of social support for guys who may be involved with this because it can be such an alienating experience. And that's, that kind um, of isolation has, is bad for anyone of any sexual orientation, but you know, particularly somebody who's doing sex work, you know, you need people that you can confide in, that you can rely on, who may be more experienced than you, who can you know, tell you what the red flags are for bad clients or bad situations. Like there needs to be some place that guys can go for some sort of pooled communal wisdom. Correct. And, you know, and uh, sex work is work. And imagine having a job that you can't complain to anyone about when you're done with your job at the end of the day, you know, much less even tell anybody what you're doing. So um, you really nailed it. So what's the name of the study uh, and where can people find it if they want to go read it? Sure. This is um, published. It's available online uh, ahead of when the journal is going to print it. It's in the Journal of Sex Research and Social Policy. The name of the study is What Kinds of Workshops Do Internet-Based Male Escorts Want? Dr. Christian Grove, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. He's the Associate Professor of Health at Brooklyn College. Thanks again, Dr. Grove. And thank you for having me. Hey, Dan. This is a heterosexual couple um, been together a long time, and we're from the Bible Belt, and we're actually a little drunk right now and just encountered a situation, and we're wondering how you might handle this. We're both huge fans of the podcast. So, we are kinky, extremely kinky, especially for our backgrounds, both raised in the Bible Belt, conservative Christian, and watching a movie We've been married for a while, but my husband means to send me a picture text message, and it consists of a man in um, thigh-high stockings in chastity with the dick in the chastity dripping pre-cum, and it has the wording, the feel of stockings and panties is enough to make you drip. Well, we just discovered in our drunken state that he sent it to me and he accidentally sent it to his mother. So now we're up drunkenly debating what we should do. Like, should we say, what? That was, we don't know how cell phones work. You know, we don't know what to say. And I think that's stupid. My thing was to say we're at a party and the phone got hijacked. We don't know what to say. Just to people from the Bible Belt that are kinky, and he just sent his mother a very dirty picture message. Okay, help us out. I know how this one turns out, because in addition to calling the podcast with this question when she was drunk or when they were drunk, uh, this caller also wrote me an email at... Uh, Savage Love, which I used as the Savage Love letter of the day. And I know how this turned out, but I really wanted to share this call with all of you Savage Love cast listeners because it's so charming. Also, it's a good example of what I warned the previous caller about is sometimes those sex messages get waylaid or misdirected or you send them to the wrong person. You just never know. When you're horny or drunk, your thumbs can get bigger and fatter and you can press the wrong contact on your phone and send incriminating crazy shit to your conservative 
mom. Uh, just to uh, cut to the chase for all you who are wondering how this turned out, uh, my advice was to say nothing to mom. And if mom brought it up, act a little bit embarrassed uh, and check your phone and tell her that it was a joke and you found this crazy, weird picture online and meant to send it to a friend as a joke and you apologize and never speak of it again. And that is what happened. Uh, mom called, invited Sonny Boy, uh, who is the caller's uh, sissy bitch maid and who lives in chastity and is her cuckold. Uh, we know all this. Go online to the Savage Love Letters of the Day and you will find the whole story. Called him over and asked him what the fuck was up with that picture and he says it was an accident. He meant to send it to his wife uh, and not to her as a joke and he apologized and his mother urged him to be more careful with his phone and said that she would pray for him. <laughs> this is something, of course, you can live through. This is what people fear, you know, people who fear sexting, people who fear the stray image or the, the email or the text message being misdirected. They fear exactly this consequence and this caller's experience is evidence that you can live through it. You can power through it. You can lie your way through it. Hopefully – Caller, your mother-in-law is not a listener to the Lovecast. Hey, Dan. Okay, have I got an interesting story for you. So I'm 32 years old, and I don't have much romantic or sexual experience. So this year I made it bold to start dating, and I went to OkCupid, of course. I had a lot of nice, enjoyable dates, but they never led to a second one. So to mix it up, I also signed up with a gay matchmaking company who promised a more serious life partner focused client base and they paired me with a personal matchmaker. So long story short, it was a rip off or at least I experienced it as a scam. I spent like $300 on it. So I was ticked off and when I asked for my money back, the owner of the gay matchmaking company wrote me a letter stating that they were very hesitant to bring me on as a member due to my extremely effeminate voice and appearance. Right, this is a direct quote from the founder of this gay matchmaking company. His extremely effeminate voice, appearance, and mannerism make him very challenging to match, but he's already aware of this. As much as he finds the facts unacceptable and unpalatable, our 20 years of experience tell us, tell us otherwise. So I'm like furious and shocked, and I'm humiliated. Uh, just as all this was going down, I heard that you were involved in a new documentary called Do I Sound Gay? about the gay voice. And I would really like to hear your thoughts on this like, specialized kind of ephemophobia within the gay community and how to deal with it. I'm also wondering, you know, if the cold hard fact is that because I'm effeminate, does that make me less sexually attractive to other gay men and or do I need to just accept the fact that my dating pool is smaller? Like, like I mean there's always a temptation to like butch it up, you know, but that's just not me and uh, Dan, all right, ephemophobia. What is the deal? Joining me by phone to talk about ephemophobia and whether having a gay voice makes you less marketable in the dating pool, David Thorpe. He's the director of the groundbreaking documentary, Do I Sound Gay? The director and the subject of the groundbreaking documentary, Do I Sound Gay? Which is currently seeking your support at kickstarter.com. First, David, how goes the Kickstarter campaign to finish the film? 
It is going really well, but it's definitely not a lock. So we really look forward to hearing from some of your listeners. And so we're, and, this is something that a lot of people are curious about. A lot of gay men are curious about. Even straight people call me and say, what's up with the, the gay voice? Is it something natural? Is it an affectation? So clearly there's a lot of interest out there and a lot of gay people are curious about it. You did this film and, and tell us what inspired you to, to make this film about sounding gay. Well, your caller might find this interesting, but I got the idea for the film after I got dumped. And I was feeling, you know, really bad about myself, as we sometimes do when we're single. And I immediately started to get obsessed with how gay I sounded. And I worried that I sounded too gay to go back in the dating pool. And I was really upset with myself after sort of 20 years of being a proud out gay man. But I still was self-conscious about sounding gay. Uh-huh. Why? Why do you think you would be self-conscious about sounding gay? <laughs> you know why, Dan. Because, because I was, you know, terrified of appearing gay as a kid. Uh-huh. And I, I monitored myself like we all did and how I walked and how I talked. And because that's, you know, as kids, how we, we judge each other's kind of gender performance. And uh, being gay was a bad thing. And, and sounding and appearing gay was a terrible thing. And I've carried that into adulthood like many other gay men. Yeah, a lot of gay men do carry that into adulthood. You hear from people, if I wanted to be with a woman, I'd be with a woman. Um, you, you hear from people, you know, that, that line that's on a lot of people's personal ads, no fats, no femmes. <laughs> and yeah. it's offensive in either case, right? But there's something, I think, deeply self-hating about the no femme thing because, because of that gender self-policing, because of that paranoia about somebody seeing cues in the way you move or the way you speak, uh, that gives away what? That gives away the truth. That gives away the fact that you are indeed gay. And if there's nothing wrong with being gay, what's wrong with being perceptibly gay? I, I have never understood this, but, but I'm, a, I'm a rare case. You know, people say, oh, he opened his mouth and a purse fell out. My reaction when a guy opens his mouth and the purse falls out is to shove my dick in. I like the gay <laughs> voice. I think a certain, like, effeminate glaze over a dude is really hot. I like that contrast between the man and the masculinity and the little bit of, like, femininity and feminine characteristics and even that feminine, like, timber in the voice. I don't understand and I've never understood gay men who are so riled by that. And when I talk to gay men who are just so incensed by it and upset by it and turned off by it, I just can't help but think there's something wrong with you. That, that's so self-hating. Well, there's, I think there's a lot of truth to what you, what you say. And I do want to say that maybe now we can actually change the saying here from this mouth and the first ball fell out to include the additional line. And then I stuck my dick in. <laughs> so, and I mean, I think that's kind of what my, what, you know, the reason we really hope to finish why right, Sunday and make the film is to actually just change that phrase, uh, that something sounds gay, which is still a slur, uh, you know, for, for sort of homophobic people and also a fear for gay people who are afraid they sound gay. And so I want, you know, do I sound gay? Yes. Hell yes. That's, you know, I want people to embrace their, who they are. And if that, if part of that is being effeminate, and for a lot of us it is, then let's, let's reclaim it. Yeah. A lot of what I, I'm always telling straight people who ask me about it, particularly the ones who say, you know, I have a friend, you know, I'm, I'm 19 and I had a friend all through high school and he sounded just like everybody else. And then he came out and suddenly he's got the gay voice and they think it's this affectation. Like they've adopted this gay sort of, uh, 
tone or this gay inflection uh, to, to get in good with the gays as if that's not a problem for a lot of gays. And the truth is that the straight voice, the bro voice, the down to octave voice was the affectation. That was the, that was what he was doing to closet himself. And now that he's free and doesn't give a shit anymore about hiding, his real voice has emerged. It's not he's like adopted a gay voice. That's his voice. The voice that you heard all through high school was a fake voice. This is his real fucking cum guzzling gay voice. Get used to it. <laughs> well, I agree with you, and I, one of the reasons I want to make Do I Sound Gay, I want to finish Do I Sound Gay, is to educate non-gay people about the gay voice, about the so-called gay voice, and that it is not an affectation. And there was a wonderful moment on Girls, uh, the first season, where Andrew Reynolds' character comes out, and uh, Hannah, uh, Lena Dunham's character, says, don't think I... Don't think I haven't noticed that fruity little voice you've put on since you came out. And he gets self-righteous and says, that is my authentic voice. So I think, you know, I, I think we do have some educating to do for people who aren't gay that these, that for, for us, these are our voices and we're not trying. Why would we try to be more feminine? That's not a, a, a value in our culture when it comes to sort of men. But I would disagree with you a little bit in that. You know, what we we, t- we will talk about this in the film when it's done is that, you know, we all code switch and we all talk in a certain way depending on who we're with. And there is a tribal language among gay men that is spread on the Internet and, and in bars and, you know, in the media. And so we, we do collectively share a language that we're constantly teaching each other and that is constantly evolving. So, you know, that, that language doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from kind of influences from Hollywood. It comes from, you know, a long history of, of how gender has evolved in, in the country. There's a utility to it. You know, when you're a tiny percentage of the population, gay men, like three-ish percent, right? When you're mm-hmm. that rare to, and you want mates, you want to attract potential partners, <laughs> that to have, a, to have a signal, to have a siren to have a foghorn that communicates subtly to other gay men that you are one of them, that is useful. Well, I agree with you, but then we have people like your caller who who experience it as rejection. So I think it's something we're still maybe working through as a community. But I, you know, I do have people in, you know, one of the people I interviewed for, for the movie said, you know, I love my gay voice because I open my mouth and it's a done deal. I don't have to come out. So, <laughs> so that's, you know, he, and he sounds really gay and, and he's kind of, I think, saying what you're saying, which is like, you want to put out the signal. Uh-huh. You want to attract the ships into your harbor. Now, any advice for this guy? It sounds like, you know, he's, out, he's got a pretty femmy voice. He's got the kind of gay voice that I actually like. The mm-hmm. purse fell out, dick goes in voice. Um, but he was told by this dating, you know, company that they pinned their lack of success, their inability to get him a date, on his mannerisms, on his dress, and on his speech. Do you think that there is a a cost that effeminate gay men pay in the dating and mating arena? I think, without a doubt, there's a cost to being cute, to effeminate in society in general, and as a gay man looking for love among other gay men, without a doubt. And, you know, what I loved about the message of Caller West was it sounded like he was really already on the right road because he said, 
you know, she said, I'm furious and humiliated. So he was angry because he knew he was being mistreated, but he had that kind of lingering internalized homophobia of humiliation. So, you know, I'm hoping he can really, maybe with your help and with the help of Do I Sound Gay, if we finish it, you know, he can really quickly kind of claim his voice and gain confidence in a way that it certainly took me far too long to do. And you've got that confidence now. I did, and but I have spent three years, you know, trying to, to shoot and, and finish you. I found gay. So if, if we don't get funded, all my confidence is going to evaporate. And I'm going to be a mess. So, <laughs> but but you in, know, in I, the process of making this film and speaking to so many gay people, speaking to voice therapists or speech therapists, you came to embrace your natural, authentic gay voice. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to give it all away because, you know, we want, we want, people just to fund the project and finish the film. But, you know, I, I will say that just like this kind of discussion helped me take a big step towards accepting myself. And that I found that a lot of my fears about my voice were, first of all, not, not concerns about me that other people had or judged me for, but also were really about my lingering internalized homophobia. And it takes a lot of strength to be yourself, and it takes a lot of strength to be gay. And, you know, we, we, we see so many sort of proud messages in the media, but we forget that that's a daily challenge and that just opening your mouth can be a test of how comfortable you really feel about yourself. So, yes, I open my mouth now, and I, I sound gay, and... I think it's awesome. I, uh, one, one last thing I want to address before, before I let you go, uh, and we plug the Kickstarter campaign for Do I Sound Gay. Everybody should go to kickstarter.com and look up Do I Sound Gay uh, and help make this film happen. Um, one last thing I want to address is sometimes you, you, you talk to people who say, uh, you know, I would never date somebody heavy and you're looking at a heavy person. And then they're decrying anti, you know, uh, anti-fat bigotry in the dating pool. You know, I've talked to gay guys who are very big. Mm-hmm. It's terrible mm-hmm. the way I get treated out in the bars and yeah. the guys I'm attracted to all turn me down. And you draw them out and you realize, oh, no, they're hitting on only skinny, ripped, sort of <laughs> conventionally attractive guys and then complaining yeah. that these guys have the same taste. And then I say, well, why, why can't you date somebody like you? It's like, oh, I'm just not attracted to guys like me. And it's unfair that guys who aren't like me aren't attracted yeah. to guys like me. And sometimes you talk to guys who have like the gay voice, who are effeminate. And you'll hear from them, if I wanted to be with a woman, I'd be with a woman. And, yeah, and what no, they're saying I'm, is, I wouldn't date somebody as effeminate as I am. And that <laughs> always blows my mind, because they're complaining about the anti-femme bigotry and discrimination in the dating yeah. pool, and yet they are themselves participating in it. They are discriminating against other femme men themselves. Yeah, I mean, Dan, I encountered exactly the same thing from many effeminate gay men who who, you know, didn't want to be with other effeminate gay men. And I, I think it's really, really complicated to kind of eroticize, to, to sort of transcend the sort of like, you know, most sort of trite, erotic, you know, messages that we've internalized and actually like look at people for who they are and try to authentically kind of have a kind of chemistry with someone. So, Listen, I don't have the answer for that, but I do. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you tell me the answer. Well, it's not an answer. It's a it's a tip from someone who is kind of into effeminate gay guys or femi gay guys, and always has been. But but I've dated broadly, and I've dated guys who are you know masculine and conventional. Let me tell you, the femi guys are fucking ferocious in bed. They 
do whatever. They don't give a shit. The guys who are so sort of hyper about their masculinity and they're gay men out there who are sort of naturally masculine. Masculine is who they are and their masculine voice is their real authentic voice. I'm not saying that all masculine gay men are putting on an act, but uh-huh. the, the femme guys – as opposed to a lot of the masculine guys aren't worried that you're going to think they're gay when they're, you're, they're sucking your dick. You can get into bed with like a kind of bro masculine gay dude who then is worried that you're going to think he's a fag while you fuck him. And the femi guy does not care. He will throw your dick down his throat. And that's always been my experience. The femme guys are way more fun and way freer in bed because they're not – they don't go yeah. through life, including go through bedrooms, worried that they might look, appear, sound, seem gayer than a guy should seem. Well, I love that you're leading the charge for like a feminine hotness. I totally agree. I think that what's incredibly attractive about a feminine guy is they, they're themselves even though they're not this ideal man that they're supposed to be. And I think that's incredibly – Hot, and I don't know if I can get really pop culture specific, but I, one reason I'm obsessed with that show, Orphan Black, is there's an, a hot, effeminate guy on it. And on in pop culture, you never see an effeminate sexual person. And you know, I think I don't know if you watch Orphan Black, but it sounds like you would really dig this guy. Wait, which show is this? Orphan Black. Orphan Black. I don't know anything about it. Oh, it's a huge show on BBC America. Um, it just second season debuted, but there's this incredible gay character who is super sexy and super feminine. And I think it's a groundbreaking portrayal. He's also he's also a sex worker. So, you know, that's a whole other set of issues. We're desperate for representation of sexy, effeminate gay men intelligent. The, the only the last one that I can remember is Xander on Drawn Together on Comedy Central, who was a cartoon. So I'm gonna look yes. up Orphan Black and dig this too. Yes. Please do, and I would love to hear what you think about it. David Thorpe, he's the director of the documentary Do I Sound Gay, which is currently seeking the funds they need to finish the film. Go to kickstarter.com and look up Do I Sound Gay. Watch the trailer. You've interviewed uh, George Takai, Don Lemon, Margaret Cho, David Sedaris, all sorts of people about the gay voice, which is something a lot of people have talked about. Uh, but I don't think anyone's really done uh, the kind of work about it that you've done. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the film if you can get it finished. And I would hope that anybody out there who's listening, who has five or ten or more to kick in, uh, will go to kickstarter.com and uh, send those bucks your way. Thank you so much, David, for jumping on the phone with us today. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old lesbian living in Seattle. I married my wife about six months ago. Um, I'm calling because my wife's good friend is getting married in a couple months, and she invited us to her bachelorette party. I should mention that this friend is straight. Uh, This bachelorette party has become sort of problematic for me because it's a wig and sparkle theme drawn around Capitol Hill, including uh, going to gay bars and catching a drag show. And she scheduled it for Pride Weekend. Uh, During the planning phase of this party, Several friends, several of her queer friends mentioned that Pride Weekend probably wouldn't be a great weekend for all of us to go to a bachelorette party, and she planned it on that weekend anyway. Now, I have a couple of problems with this. One is that she's clearly ignoring the importance of Pride for her queer friends. It's our only weekend where we get to walk around and feel comfortable with ourselves and our families. And my other issue is that I feel like she's mocking gay culture by running around Capitol Hill in a wig and sparkles and going to drag shows and gay bars during Pride Weekend. 
Uh, my question for you is this. Am I being a crazy bitch? My wife agrees with me, but she's more of a peacekeeper, so she probably wouldn't say anything. So should I boycott this event and make my reasons known, or should I just learn from my wife and keep the peace? Really? Pride weekend is the only weekend that we get to walk around and feel comfortable with ourselves and our families? That is the saddest thing I've ever heard a queer person say on the podcast. And we've had teenagers in terrible circumstances with bigoted families call us who are in terrible circumstances. But this is really sad and it can't be true. I'm sure that's a misstatement. You can't mean that this one weekend in June when there's a gay pride parade is literally the only weekend out of the year where you feel comfortable walking around being queer, particularly in the city of Seattle where I pretty much feel queer and comfortable everywhere I go. So the question, you know, are you being a bitch? Kind of, yeah. In some ways, yes. and In other ways, no. That this woman's queer friends told her that Pride would not be a good weekend for them uh, and she went ahead and scheduled it on Pride anyway. Shows that kind of I'm getting married. The world revolves around me. It's a heliocentric universe and I am the fucking center of it. Uh, inconsiderate bullshit that some people seem to fall prey to when they're getting married. Uh, so that's bullshit on her part. And you guys can say, I told you that weekend was bad for me. Sorry, I'm going to miss your bachelorette party. You don't have to go. You told her you had a conflict that weekend, which is your usual pride plans, celebrations, parties, whatever it is you like to do and typically do on pride. And so you have a conflict and you can't go. And she knew that. So don't go if you don't want to go. On the other hand, like lolling around in gay bars, uh, while you're having your bachelorette party, Sidetrack, very famous gay bar in Chicago. Uh, I used to go in as a teenager. I love Sidetrack. Whenever I'm in Chicago, I go to Sidetrack. I still go to Sidetrack for musical comedy night on Mondays. Um, famously banned bachelorette parties a few years ago because the gay bars in Chicago, Halstead Street, had become this kind of focus for bachelorette parties. And when they banned bachelorette parties at Sidetrack, what they said was you have these groups of women coming in wearing penis necklaces celebrating a right that we ourselves do not enjoy. At the time, uh, same-sex couples in Chicago in Illinois could not legally marry. Well, guess what? Same-sex couples in Chicago can now legally marry. I don't know if they've lifted the ban on bachelorette parties at Sidetrack but the reason for the ban – was parading around celebrating the rights you enjoy that we do not in front of us and expecting us to laugh and cheer and clap when that's just rude and inconsiderate. Well, Seattle, Washington, we can legally marry same-sex couples. We have marriage equality in Washington state. We have marriage equality at the federal level if you're lucky enough to live in a state with marriage equality like Washington state. So a bachelorette party going to a gay bar isn't a group of dumb straight girls dancing around celebrating their right to marry when the queers who are in the bar do not enjoy an equal right to marry. So it seems to me that it's not as offensive or thoughtless as it once was. Also, since I live in Seattle, I know that the drag show that has all the bachelorette parties, Lacage at Julia's on Broadway – they welcome bachelorette parties. They market Lacage to bachelorette parties. Your friend might have a hard time getting in on Pride Weekend, but it's not as if bachelorette parties aren't in their business plan. They are. So, you know, when I say, are you being a bitch? Yes and no. Uh, yeah, I think we've reached a point in places like Illinois, Washington, 
uh, Massachusetts, California, where what raised our hackles about bachelorette parties coming into gay bars uh, is no longer an issue and we should welcome them and celebrate them. I'm happy for straight people when they get married. Our bars don't have to be all about them. They are queer spaces. You are a guest. Come in, have a drink. We'll have a toast. Then get the fuck out so we can get back to picking each other up. But it isn't as offensive as it was. So yeah, on that score, kind of being a little bit of a bitch. Um, on the other hand, uh, her planning this for Pride Weekend, when her queer friends told her that Pride Weekend was not a good weekend for them, you're not being a bitch about that. You have every right to bow out of her bachelorette party. You have every right not to go. Every right to tell her that you're really sorry, but on Pride Weekend, you do this and that and the other with your queer friends and your queer girlfriend or your queer wife. But you're really sorry and you're going to miss her bachelorette party. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from Los Angeles, California. I just wanted to say thanks for your discussion and reminders telling people to register to vote and vote in the midterms. And I also wanted to add that it's also important to keep your eyes on local elections. Here in Los Angeles, we have a primary for a new sheriff, the first new sheriff in a long time. The primary is going to be on June 3rd, and that is going to determine how the prison systems are run, how bus lines, other public transportation is run, a lot of important stuff for uh, the people of the city and the surrounding area. So uh, I would encourage everyone to keep an eye on their local elections, special elections. These things can happen at any time, not just November. People should register to vote now so that they're ready whenever the next election rolls around. I just want to respond to episode 393 when you were talking to the man about using the terms husband and wife. And I have to disagree with you, um, particularly about the term wife, because as a married woman living in the Southeast, um, I can tell you that definitely some people do still use the term wife in that really patriarchal, old-fashioned way, namely my mother and her sisters. They, and my mom in particular, will like aggressively write Mrs. and my husband's name on mail to me, even though I've explicitly told them that I use the MS and not MRS. And yeah, it's it's really kind of obnoxious because they sort of insist on labeling me that way with titles. Um, and I think that the way they use wife, like your so-and-so's wife, well, how does he feel about that? How does he feel about your hair? And those kinds of questions that I do still get asked. Yeah, they're definitely still using it that way. On the other hand, though, I went to graduate school in the Northwest. And up there, in my program at least, everybody used the term partner. Day straight bisexual, married, not, whatever. People just use the term partner to try to be egalitarian about it. So I kind of picked that up, but when I came back to the South, then that confuses people here because they think that I must be lesbian if I'm using the term partner. So overall, I just find it confusing, but maybe I'm just going to go with spouse because I also think, you know, gender spectrum and wife and husband do kind of reinforce that gender binary as well. So just some further thoughts on that, and thanks so much for your show. Hey, I'm calling about episode 393, the young lady who had to extend her legs and clench them in order to get off. And I think that is, like, so hot. I think that's totally hot. And I can, like, I got a visual of that. <laughs> if that's the only way she gets off, then, hey, that's fine. That's fine with me. And we're going to leave it there. Magnum listeners, we love you so much. And you can give the Magnum as a gift. Just go to SavageLoveCast.com and click on the Gray Gift button. 
206-201-2720 is the number at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to give us a call and leave a question or a comment for a future show, 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow David Thorpe on Twitter at Do I Sound Gay. Find out when the Hump Tour is coming to your town at humptour.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.